This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And unlike Simpson, viruses just don't go away quietly once we have vaccines. They're mutating, changing as a way to stay alive, even though they're dead. COVID-19, no difference. You've been hearing the recent stories about variants out there, California, the UK, South Africa, understanding how and why this happens. Tracking the variants will help us get control, hopefully, once and for all. Now, you knew this would happen. The rich and famous are doing everything they can to move to the front of the vaccination lines. We'll get into what they are doing and if it is working. We don't know when the next pandemic is coming, but it is eventually. When it does, will we be ready? We, we haven't, we're not even ready for this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's yeah. thinking ahead. Yeah. More good news on the way. <laughs> A new study backs up those who want schools to reopen. And outdoor dining returning here in Southern California. We'll talk to a couple restaurant owners who will welcome customers again. Let's start with figuring out the evolution of COVID-19 and why it matters. Dr. Kautik Chandra is a virologist and microbiologist at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. Doctor, do all of these variants present a problem? That's a good question. I think what's important for your listeners to know is that um, even though these variants are a little different, or in some cases quite different, the kind of immune response that your body generates in response to these vaccines is very broad. It has a lot of really pieces to it. Um, And even though the virus um, is slightly different, um, this very broad immune response is really good enough to deal with the the different variants, uh, at least the ones that we we have right now and that are coming up. So it's it's a little bit like, you know, the virus, can twist and turn very quickly, very rapidly, it's very flexible, Um, but it's going up against, you know, a lot of different tacklers at once. And so it really, you know, to use a sort of a football analogy, uh, so it can't really twist and turn its way out of everybody's grasp. So even if some people miss their tackles, other people are gonna eventually get it. And that's really the way to think about these vaccine responses. And what we know so far is that the At least some of the vaccines that we have right now should work against these variants just fine. All right. Let's say it changes more than slightly. It starts doing somersaults over everybody who's heading at it. Mm -hmm. They always say you can change these new vaccines because the technology is different. You can change it uh, relatively easy, faster than you used to be able to work things up. How fast is fast? Yeah. So I think the fast part is really comes from the fact that some of these vaccines are Um, relatively simple to retool, which wasn't always the case uh, before. And they can also be manufactured pretty quickly. So I think, I mean, I'm not in the vaccine manufacturing business. So, but I would imagine that, you know, know, in in a few months um, or less, one should be able to start getting new batches of vaccine. And the thing is that, you know, um, and this is something that we do every year for the flu, for example, Um, but of course we're gonna have to do this much more quickly um, but these new types of vaccines that are coming out, especially these RNA-based vaccines, um, you know, really should allow us to uh, change things much more quickly. But it's still going to take some time. Now, there are variants of a, of a, um, uh, a virus, and then there are entirely new strains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, could the, the current uh, virus that causes COVID-19, which has now a multitude, clearly, of variants, could it morph into an entirely new strain, which might be more problematic, I would suspect? Um, so I, I, 
The problem with the whole variant and strain thing is that nobody can actually agree on what a variant is versus what a strain is. So all um, strains are variants, but not all variants are strains. So it really gets into the weeds of sort of what scientists like to argue about. And I don't actually think it's a very useful way to think about these viruses in a practical way. Um, it, you know, so the more practical and useful way to think about uh, these viruses is that they're constantly changing, they're constantly evolving. And, you know, compared to where we started with the Wuhan uh, isolate of this virus more than a year ago, the virus, you know, in aggregate has moved genetically. It's changed, you know, uh, genetically. And these genetic changes are just going to keep accumulating. A lot of them just happen due to chance because the virus is, you know, can't copy itself accurately. So it's always, quote unquote, making mistakes. So, um, you know, these viruses are always mutating. And just because we see certain variants pop up doesn't mean the virus is doing anything different. It's just a roll of the dice um, that that particular kind of uh, variant got selected. So I, I, I don't think it's useful to really dwell on sort of the, you know, in some cases, really semantic difference between what is a variant and what is a strain. It's more useful to think about the specific biological properties of each of these things, whether you call them variants or strains. And of course, the more genetically different a virus is, the more likely it is to have different biological properties. And at the end of the day, biological properties are what we care about, right? Because these are things like, you know, how transmissible is the virus? How likely is it to make me sick? How likely is it to evade the, the immune response? And the more the virus changes, the longer we wait, the more likely it is that we're gonna create a new strain or a new genetic entity or new viral entity that has biological properties that we need to worry about. So we're already seeing, for example, that some of these uh, new variants appear to be more transmissible, although there's no evidence that they appear to cause more severe disease. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, they also don't appear to get past uh, our immune response or the vaccines that we have right now. So they do have some changed biological properties that you know, are somewhat worrisome, but not so worrisome that you know, we need to panic because the existing crop of vaccines will work. So I think it's more useful to think about the biological properties of these different right. viruses as they, as they arise rather than strain versus variant. Dr. Kartik Chandran, virologist, microbiologist, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Thanks. When you're rich and famous in the U.S., you're basically treated like royalty, and it is good to be the king or queen. The wealthy and powerful are using their riches to buy their way ahead in line to get the vaccine earlier than they should. Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, is with us. Ruth, should we be surprised? Yes, we have talked about this before, and no, we should not be surprised. It's predictable, it's unfortunate, and it's also profoundly wrong. And and yet, you know, what's interesting, too, is that, yes, we, we have talked about it. We all kind of, not that it took a, a great, uh, you know, uh, crystal ball, but we all kind of said, yeah, this is probably going to happen. And a lot of officials said, no, there are safeguards in place to stop this from happening. And we all knew that that was a bunch of nonsense. Uh, so isn't there a way to stop this? Or is the answer simply, yeah. in our real world, people with money and power are going to do what people with money and power tend to do? I would be careful. There are safeguards and this is happening, but we don't know how much it's happening. We don't know how big a problem it is. So for example, in some jurisdictions in New York, uh, the governor of the state has instituted regulations that literally will result in penalties as severe as loss of medical licensure to physicians who jump uh, the priority groups in 
vaccinating essentially privileged people for excessive amounts of money. There's also real control over the vaccine itself. It's not all that easy uh, to jump the queue. It's happening, but it's not all that easy to do in the U.S. because the supplies are extremely limited and very carefully kind of coveted and controlled by the public health institutions and healthcare systems that have possession of them. So on the one hand, it's happening. It should not be allowed to happen. And it's deeply problematic. On the other hand, right now, I don't think it's a massive issue in terms of sizable numbers of vaccine finding themselves in the arms of the privileged and the connected. It's kind of also just human nature, right? People are going to try to find a way, at least some yeah. people. And we have examples of, you know, non-rich people who have figured out a way to, in some cases to try and yeah. sign up if they if they know there's a vaccination site somewhere. Yeah. Yes, it says only healthcare workers, but they go through the process anyways. And then they just hope you don't ask for yeah. your hospital ID and you end up getting a shot because you slipped into the line. Yes. So there's that, too. So I want to draw a distinction between people who are really trading on their connections, their privilege in an extreme way, uh, their wealth, their ability to travel around the world in private planes and secure kind of fancy safari trips that include, by the way, a vaccine. Uh, It's horrible that it's happening. It's probably not going to dramatically alter the constraint problems we have with vaccine supply. On the other hand, to the other extreme, there are people who are in... um, you know, trying to get a vaccine, they understand if they queue up in line, there's going to be some extra doses at the end of the day, maybe, even though they're not yet in a priority group. I think that's totally a reasonable and appropriate thing for people to do. Anything is better than wasting a dose of vaccine. Lying, misrepresenting yourself on uh, the various portals, that's ethically inappropriate. And people need to play by the rules or this is just going to continue to fall on its face. Uh, kind of collapse on its own weight. If you have a concern or worry, you think the rules are unfair, now is the time to go out in public and discuss your concerns and raise your worries and see if you can't get the prioritization schemes to change in your local jurisdiction. But lying or misrepresenting, that's just not the way to go. Ruth Faden, founder of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. This pandemic isn't even over, and yet plans are being made on how to handle the next one. The Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense has issued a report of recommendations on how to be ready next time. KYW's Matt Leon talked about the reports with the commission's co-chairs, two familiar names, former Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge and Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman. The threat did not seem real. Now we're living through it with COVID-19, and it's why we've issued this Apollo program report recommendation to learn from the lessons of the last year, to have a big, bold national program to invest in developing the science and technologies we really have most of already, uh, public, private sector. So next time an infectious, infectious disease outbreak occurs, we don't allow it to become a pandemic because we've got the vaccines, we've got the testing, we've got the masks. We can hit it hard uh, right at the beginning. It's going to cost money. It's going to take leadership. But, uh, you know, we've already lost over 400,000 Americans and trillions of dollars in our economy. Uh, It's worth the investment right now. So that's that's a short history. 
of uh, our bipartisan commission. And uh, it's been great to work with Tom Ridge. Just, just the best. Secretary Ridge, as far as the Apollo program for biodefense, the report, kind of what are the main things you want people to take away from this? What are the, the, the most important things we need to do to be ready for the next time? Well, thank you for that uh, question. Uh, I guess the most important idea that we would share with your audience is that we need to be bold. We need to be aspirational. We cannot let this happen to us again. And that's one of the tragic lessons of uh, the past uh, year. More men and women have died than died in World War II. Globally, over 2 million deaths. And what is said, and, and we want to say it in a very respectful way, the experts we talked to five or six years ago said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But frankly, for a lot of different reasons, people were still didn't pay as much attention as perhaps we all should have. So we look at that. We say to ourselves, never again. But in order to make sure that that happens, the Apollo program, the lessons that we'd want the audience and Congress and the president to take in is we can do this. Out of this adversity, we've already demonstrated to ourselves, not only are we a resilient country, we can bounce back, but we can learn more, do more, and be far better prepared to make sure that an infectious disease, which we can never eliminate, never turns into a pandemic. And so the big takeaway is, let's make a 10-year commitment, modest funding. I mean, we spend $700 billion a year to protect us from nation states who would threaten threaten our liberty and our freedom. A two or 3% of that on an annual basis for the next 10 years to deal with the ongoing threat of mother nature and global disease. So that's the takeaway. Be bold, be aspirational, good lessons learned from how we responded to COVID-19, some lessons not very good. We have to make sure we don't repeat them and we end up being far better prepared to deal with the, the future of infectious disease by eliminating by eliminating the threat of the pandemic. Short break, and then maybe it's time to get kids back in schools. A lot of schools across the country remain closed, but should they be? CDC researchers say there is reassuring evidence that open schools do not lead to widespread COVID transmission. Report points to data from 90,000 students and staff in 11 districts in North Carolina that were open. Just 32 infections acquired in school in nine weeks. No cases of students given the virus to teachers or staff. With us is Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. So, Randy, is it time to get back in the classroom if the community spread out there slows down? Well, that's but frankly, that's where teachers have been for months and months and months. The issue that's in contention in Chicago and in so many other places is the caveat that um, the CDC said, which is with the precautions that we have seen that elementary schools um, have had very, you know, had had really reduced transmissions from, you know, of COVID. um, And it's been different than communities. That's all really good news. And we saw that in September, October and November because of the testing. The real question becomes, can we get the kind of precautions that we need in schools um, based upon the guidance that um, the CDC has has had since last year, but was um, downplayed by the last president and get the resources to get 
them done. So what we asked for last summer was the kind of guidance and the resources that Joe Biden has promised will happen. I think with the guidance and those resources, and now with a lot of this anecdotal evidence, um, it's going to be, um, you know, it's it's going to be easier to get schools reopened, and we're going to have to really follow the science, and we're going to have to actually deal with, you know, still so much fear because of the new variant. Okay, so uh, obviously we're talking about uh, students and teachers wearing masks and keeping people as far apart as possible. What else is needed? Uh, so what the CDC will tell you, there's kind of four things. It's the mass and physical distancing, the cleaning and ventilation. That's all kind of the package of mitigation as well as kids washing their hands. The second thing is that since most of this spread, half the spread is asymptomatic, that you need to have the kind of aggressive testing that has been opening up. That's what opens up the White House. That's what opens up the Congress now. That's what's opening up, you know, businesses like, you know, the film industry and things like that. And we need to do that for, you know, um, in schools so that we know that 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 kids and teachers are not walking in with the virus. And then the third thing is the vaccines are really going to be helpful in terms of really creating that kind of layer of protection. Um, we knew that teachers, you know, needed to be a priority, but obviously healthcare workers and the congregate living situations you were just talking about had to be a higher priority. And the last thing is because we're in a pandemic still, people who are at high risk, meaning, you know, they're severe asthmatics and have real oxygen issues in normal times, or they have kids or they're taking care of, you know, family members who have are high risk, they still need to have accommodations. Okay. So that's the package. Okay, but uh, it, some of the things like vaccinations and some of the other things, perhaps even in, you know, up to and including schools, improving ventilation systems can take a long time. Uh, so the question does become, you know, how long do you think is long in terms of See, getting that, these things so done? This is what... This is often where and 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 look, the stuff that we're talking about about ventilation, we knew last March. The reason the ventilation systems are such a so I'm not saying that you need to wait to have everybody vaccinated. I'm not saying you need to wait to recreate every single you know ventilation system, but these are capacity issues that we've known about since last March. Like, they should have been worked on this summer. Like, I've been on radio countless times saying the same exact thing. And so the, the issue becomes we have to do these kind of fixes and, and do them quickly. There are ways of fixing ventilation systems right now. There are ways of, 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 of changing them quickly, but they take money. The testing processes take money. So what I think you're seeing here is that there has not been a willingness. That's why the Trump administration refused to do guidance. There's not been a willingness to match the urgency of kids being school, a willingness to do the safety precautions that industry is doing for um, its employees. Randy Weigarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Restaurants in L.A. County reopening outdoor dining this week after it was ordered stopped in November. Other restaurants in Southern California had to stop outdoor dining in December due to the stay-at-home order. 
That left a lot of restaurants barely hanging on. State orders, though, lifted. Restaurants can host sit-down customers outside once again. Kim Prince, the owner-operator of Hotville Chicken in L.A. Brett Thompson, chef-owner of Pez Cantina in downtown L.A. So, Kim, you're a little worried about the outdoor dining starting up again or, or no? I am indeed. Um, outdoor dining, we have a nice patio that's covered and there's lots of great cross breezes and whatnot. Um, it, does, it only seats like... 10 or 12 people. And so um, I'm not so much apprehensive about it being outdoor dining as I am when the floodgates open to allow people back inside again. Yeah. So is it still going to be better for you? Obviously, even having 10 or 12 seats is better than just takeout only. How much of a difference does that make for you? It actually does make a difference. I found that when we closed down in November, when we shut the patio down in November, we had so many people who were wanting to sit down inside uh, on that patio and, and having a turn in the way, uh, it, it just seems like they would have bought more. Um, you know, they'd be a repeat customer if they if we had some seating because that was their agenda. They wanted to come to a place where they could sit down and eat. Um, I've, I'm finding now that people are actually sitting in the parking lot tailgating now. Um, <laughs> we have such great weather here in LA and you know, with the exception of the last couple of days yeah, most of the time right we have great weather and even during the holidays the weather was amazing and I think that you know our numbers would be just a you know, the ounce different um but when people come I'm grateful regardless that we have something to offer them that our doors are still open someday uh hopefully soon uh the, pan- the pandemic will end and I'm wondering, uh, Brett, and, and then if we have time, maybe, uh, Kim, you can also jump in, if you think it's going to have some kind of lasting impact on your business. On, and I don't mean your individual business, but on the restaurant industry. Do you think there's going to be some sort of legacy because of the pandemic? And, you know, 30 years from now, people are going to go, oh, yeah, that happened because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's. it certainly is going to have a long-lasting, you know, permanent impact. I mean, for us here... For example, in the financial district, I don't think the financial district's ever going to be the same, you know, anytime soon. I think in general, you know, just talking with architects and those who build restaurants and who really think of the schematic design of restaurants, it's really all about, you know, outdoor patios. I think there's going to be a, 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 a large turn towards, you know, maybe smaller dining rooms, smaller footprints. I think we see the success of to go, uh, you know, uh, drive-throughs right now and and more fast casual concepts maybe having more success. So, I mean, we certainly think in terms of like being in the financial district or being in downtown Los Angeles, it's I think it's probably a little more difficult than if we were to be in a neighborhood that's dense with residential. So these are all things we're thinking about, and I'm sure that others in our industry are also thinking about, you know, the the long-lasting permanent uh, changes. Kim, what do you think changes? Yeah, sure. Uh, it makes me immediately think about the fact that my particular restaurant is actually scouting other locations and looking to scale the business, and I have to keep the pandemic in mind. So uh, my my thinking goes to, yes, it has to ha- offer outdoor seating. It has to offer plenty of uh, room for, if we're going to have indoor seating, I'm looking for a footprint that's more kitchen-related and, and takeout, you know, maybe have a window instead. So um, I don't have to do, you know, the formalized full service dining anymore. Um, I go back in the pop up mode. That's what I did this this past year, and and our 
menu is simple. It's a very simplified menu. I call it a pandemic-proof menu anyway. <laughs> and so uh, our food costs were able to keep those down. But we, we, we have to re-engineer our thinking as operators and owners, right, Brett? We have to think like that. So uh, in the yep. future, you know, it's like how, how much more can we do with few bodies, with fewer mm-hmm. staff? And at least that's mm-hmm. how it works for me. I, I just invested in a food truck. Our food truck's coming out this week. So, um that's kind of kind of like the surface of what's happening right now for us here at Hyville. Brett, when you hear Kim talking and, and she's making it and there's a food truck coming, what does it make you feel knowing that, you know, so many restaurants have closed, but now you're talking to somebody else on the other end of the phone that, okay, she's going to be all right? I'm so, congratulations, Kim. That's amazing. Um, and I'm so happy to, to hear that you're thinking about growth and not about shrinking. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are, you know, that you could, you can say, look at this two ways. You can look at it like, you know, you know, what, what am I going to do over the next, you know, am I going to close the restaurant or, you know, are we going to think about growing? Are we going to think about, you know, there's the, the restaurant business is not going to be extinct. We are going to move forward. There's going to be opportunities. Um, we're hoping landlords will kind of maybe understand, you know, how it is now for restaurants. Um, we're thinking the same way in terms of growth. I mean, we, we actually just signed a new location, um, in Southern California, a smaller location, outdoor, kind of an outdoor food hall. So we're also thinking about growth as well. And, and I, I just think we've got to keep our chins up. We've got to keep, stay positive. Um, and we've just got to adapt. And we've got to be, you know, really thinking ahead of the game. And, um, you know, I, I'm just got to keep, got to stay positive. Brett at Pez yeah. in downtown L.A., Kim, Hotfield Chicken uh, in Crenshaw. Thanks to you both for coming on. We have some good news if you're still wondering about those eight gorillas at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park who got COVID. They are all expected to make a full recovery. The park says the lowland gorillas were likely exposed by a zookeeper who tested positive for COVID-19 in early January. The park says some of the gorillas will even get the COVID-19 vaccine, but it'll be from a supply not permitted for use in people. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Do you think they do the gorillas by, like, age and essential workers? And things <laughs> it's a like whole that? list. Yeah, well.